Welcome to the Combat Morale Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Tom Thorpe. The Combat Morale Podcast explores what motivates people to fight or not fight in armed conflict. A quick disclaimer before we get to the action. The views expressed by any of the guests on the podcast are purely of a personal nature, do not represent the views or opinions of any organisation or government. With that disclaimer out of the way, it is season two, episode 21. And in this podcast, I talk to Dr. David Stahel about his recent book on Panzer Generals, and we explore their motivation that shaped their conduct on the Eastern Front. David spoke to me from his office in Canberra. David, welcome to the podcast. To set the stage, could you provide our listeners with an, ins- an introduction to your latest research, specifically focusing on your biographical study of German panzer commanders on the Eastern Front during the Second World War? What motivated you to explore the private lives and motivations of these commanders? Yeah, that's a, a good question. Um, I think maybe particularly for someone like me, just because if any of the listeners actually knew my background, I know a lot of them perhaps won't, but I'm the guy who has spent a lot of time writing about German operational history of the Eastern Front, particularly involved in looking at these panzer groups. So the question could quite legitimately be asked, really, what's this guy doing with a book on the panzer generals? In the books that I've already done, haven't I kind of discussed them a lot? So what's in this? Um, And Uh, I think there's also got to be a little bit of a discussion of the backstory to these books. So those books are very much focused on operational, uh, sometimes also strategic questions, um, and they're built on files from the German military archive, not surprisingly, right? The difference with this book is it's based on the private letters of these men, and it's not first and foremost about campaigns and battles. Very much that's what I felt I had dealt with, but here's the big part, I had not looked at these letters. Now, that might sound like a huge admission for someone working in quite a lot of detail on the Eastern Front. Why didn't I look at letters if I'm going to do these very in-depth histories? There's two explanations for that. Um, In the first instance, I did know that they were there, so there's no getting out of that. Why wouldn't I use them? So there is something called the Ordnance on Communication in the German Army, which basically stipulates what a German soldier is allowed to include in a letter and what they're not allowed. It's very strict, as you might imagine, for the German Wehrmacht. You're not even allowed to mention who your lieutenant is by name. You can't mention anything about where you are. You can't mention place names. You can't share anything that would be seen as propaganda. It's quite a detailed list, right? Now, if that's your communication ordinance for your average soldier, you can be quite sure that applies to German generals. So in the first instance, my supposition turns out not to have been correct, but this is me uh, looking back 20 years ago or almost 20 years ago when I started my PhD research. My supposition was, well, there's not going to be anything in there. They couldn't be allowed to discuss it all. Me thinking, oh, they follow their regulations. Of course they do, right? They're German generals. They're setting this stuff. They have to be observing it. There's another functional problem though. Like I did order them because I was still curious and I might've at that first glance gone, oh my God, these are a rich, rich source. The problem is, and this might surprise some of your listeners, German generals of that generation did not use the alphabet we understand and the one that Germans use today. How crazy is that, right? So if you go back to something like, you know, imagine this this German state is relatively new, but it used to be this whole constellation under the Holy Roman Empire, if you go back to the, you know, almost medieval times of different German states. And you can imagine their education systems were completely split and people were forming letters in different ways. Whoever reforms that, it never gets reformed. So these guys are learning to write, they have the same alphabet, but they don't form the letters in the same way. There's basically, um, I won't go into the whole history of it, but it's in the early 20th century that they come up with Zutulen, which is just inside the Prussian state to try and unify just inside Prussia. But most of my generals, uh, all of them bar one, come from Prussia to try and get them to write the letters the same way so everyone can read the same uh, script. But of course, that's early 20th century. These guys go to school in the late 19th century. So they've missed this, right? They're, they're, they're too soon, which just means the problem for the historian at looking at guys of this generation is even a, even a, I mean, I'm, I'm not a German, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an Australian national um, or New Zealander and Australian. Um, uh, Germans can't read them. You have to really spend time to get 
into how they're forming these letters. And then, you know, you have the usual problems of cursive writing that we can have even trying to read English letters. So there's a real, I guess, historiographical problem. How did I resolve that? I'm not going to try and guess. Sometimes I'm looking at these letters myself and thinking, God, what is that word? I basically got um, uh, like a handwriting expert to go through and transcribe them. Then I paid another guy to check that guy. So there was two sets of eyes on it. Um, uh, And that was just transcribing them into German, right? So as a PhD student, coming back to the original point, um, I wasn't going through all this expense and problems just to find out that they're writing about Auntie v- Bessie's varicose veins and all those kinds of problems. I thought, no, I don't, there's not going to be anything military in here anyway, because there can't be. That turned out to be incorrect. When I got to a later stage, so about five years ago in my career, and I had more money than time, which was the opposite of earlier, I thought to myself, I'm going to spend the money and just see what's in these. I don't want to go on what anyone tells me. Johannes Herter had been using them really effectively for a wonderful book he did. 20 years ago and so, but it's only ever been in German. And there was a few tidbits in there that made me think, hang on, that's about the military. They shouldn't have been writing that. What's in these letters? So I went back, spent the money, and I got them. And at the end of it, I turned up. I'll never forget that night. Basically, Guderian's letters all turned up. I read them. They were just all transcribed into German. And I was, oh, my God, there's so much in this from a military point of view. So yes, they would have helped some of those earlier studies, but what really struck me was there's a whole lot besides that we don't know about this guy. And that was just too interesting. And then when I started to say, right, I'm going to get Herpeners, I'm going to get Reinhardt, I'm going to get Schmitz because I knew they had letters. What are the chances they're all writing about wonderful stuff that could be really interesting? And the, the bottom line is when I got through those letter collections as well, had them transcribed I just thought, okay, I thought I was done with uh, the Eastern Front and these Panzer commanders, but I got to do another one. I got I to gotta bring this out. There's just too much meat on that bone. It's too rich. So I hope that's what your readers will or your listeners will also conclude when we get into some of the detail. So Germany's success during the Second World War relies very much on its tank forces, yet many of its leading generals remain relatively unknown. Can you shed a um, pivotal role of these commanders and who they were and, what, and why their contributions have been uh, largely over overshadowed by more prominent figures yeah overshadowed i mean obviously they're a bit of a mixed bag guderian is a guy who i think most people have heard of and there's been quite a bit written about him but you're absolutely right um you know one of the things i would say is it's not the case that your military career equates in the historiography to your prominence you can have a very prominent, particularly in the East. Now, that in the first instance might say something about the Anglo-American world that we represent, right? Not surprisingly, people take an interest very often in the German side of things insofar as it pertains to Anglo-American campaigns. We shouldn't be surprised, therefore, that someone like Rommel is as well-known as he is. Um, but if you think about it, in 1941, when you know, Rommel's going to North Africa. It's the Africa core. It's a core. Ask yourself the question, how many cores are there on the Eastern Front when they invade in that same year? Because it's such a huge invasion, we have 44 core commanders. And who can name any of them, right? Rommel's known, but he fights the Anglo-Americans. Um, but it's that's not the whole story. It's not just as simple as, you know, Anglo-Americans are interested in German generals who they fight against, and, and, and that's the end of it. Although I think that's part of it. If I look at a man like Reinhardt, Again, not a guy who's necessarily very well known. He doesn't necessarily start Barbarossa as this big prominent general. He's a Panzer Corps commander, so relatively, you know, middle level, I guess. But he quickly becomes an army commander, and he remains an army commander already in uh, 1941. He becomes a, a Panzer army commander as well, very quickly. And he's going to be an army commander right through the rest of the war. He'll come to being commander of army group center and he's on the eastern front till 1945 41 to 45 and yet he's relatively unknown right there's no real work done on him in english well now there is um that's a man who's in a lot of major campaigns with very little visibility um so there is a good example there of uh how we um perhaps you know don't understand the German commanders. But the other thing that I would say is a, is a really big point that, you know, I spent quite a bit of time in the book exploring is how this phenomena of your prominence is generated not by your military success. We think, you know, whether they get awards, whether they get promotions, whether they're known to us is must be must be re- re- related to their, their ability to achieve things militarily. I would say that's quite false. Um, the success they have is very much about, it's not what you know, it's who you know. They are very well connected and they are working those connections um, on a lot of different levels. But 
it's also about public prominence. One of the things that I, th- I think people often assume things about Nazi Germany that aren't correct, like celebrity in that time was very much linked to things like military. Um, if you read memoirs of a lot of people who experienced the Third Reich as children, um, something I spent a little bit of time in the book doing, uh, just because I found um, uh, uh, references in the letters to... Oh, my fan mail is keeping me very busy. My fan mail, you're on the Eastern Front fighting a major campaign. You're dealing with your sacks of fan mail. What is this? I even actually, this is getting into a bit of an aside, but I think it could be interesting to your readers. I started to investigate this, not just by looking at the the memoirs of these people, but what I started to notice was, you know what they're doing? They've got postcards made up of themselves because they get so many of these that they print up postcards with their own signature printed on them. And I was like, okay, so Guderian has one of these. I had seen it before, right? A picture of one of these. And I thought, but hang on, who else has got these? Has Herpina got one? Yep. Have the others got them? Field marshals got them? Yep. Lots of people got them. So here's what I started to do, which is a little bit strange for me. Uh, I was hoping at the time no one would be checking my search history. I started to go to these shops that sell Nazi memorabilia, right? And I started saying to them, hey, guys, I'm interested in uh, signed... uh, you know, memorabilia from German generals. Oh, I mean, you've got a whole catalog for it. And I said, okay, I just want to chart who have you got. And I'm looking for generals sometimes who are very low order, like divisional commanders, corps commanders, no real visibility. People like me would know them. Most people wouldn't have any clue, even people who read in World War II. Oh yeah, we've got that guy. Yep. And they're postcards and they're, well, some of them are super rare, but that's just what survived. In other words, there is a whole currency and a whole trade at the time in collecting these for kids. They're going out and getting them and the guys oblige, right? They're doing this. They're taking the time, even on campaign, and they're complaining about it in the letters to the wives saying, oh, I got so many of these things. I got to, but I, they don't look at it as, well, that's completely you know, arbitrary, uh, expendable. No, I'm doing it. Because why? Because it is promotion. And they are aggressively pursuing the propaganda companies. So propaganda companies exist on the Eastern Front. If you have an army or an or a panzer group, you have a propaganda company. If you're lower than that, if you're a core commander, you don't have access to one of them. Now, for some German commanders, it's just those propaganda guys have zero interest. I'm here to command. And they don't take any notice. Panzer commanders tend to be very different. They are aware of what they can do for them. And celebrity is a thing. So they want to be in the glossy magazines. The absolute pinnacle is the Wachenschau. There's, there's these movies that they show every week at the cinema. And they are getting photos and, and all kinds of uh, uh, promotion through the media And there is a very real correlation between pursuing that well, doing that well, and having a very prominent career. So you won't be surprised to hear that Rommel's very good at it and understands that on a lot of different levels. Writes books. um, Before the war, he wrote a book, very popular book, um, is very good at that, that, that public side. Guderian is really good at it too. Even on the Eastern Front, one of the things that comes up in the letters that I never knew before, he has gone to a very popular writer of the time who wrote a lot of sort of, you know, popular manuscripts and things and had claimed that he was Hitler's scribe and everything um, and got him to write a manus- uh, write a biography of Guderian. And so he came to the Eastern Front in 1941 and he's watching Guderian because the whole idea is he's going to, he was there with Guderian and then he writes this wonderful text. He churns this thing out in about six weeks and he's even gone to talk to Guderian's wife. So they're both having a conversation about this guy. Then the guy submits his very, what seems, I don't have, the manuscript does not survive, but Margreta, Heinz Guderian's wife, reads it and basically writes to Heinz and says, oh, it's so tabloid. And he, it's so over the top. And it's, and it's sometimes him emphasizing that your success is due to your soldiers and not to you. And I don't like this. He also asks sometimes personal questions, which is not for us as good Prussian people, right? So Heinz is then like, oh, well, backtrack. I don't want anything that's going to make me look bad. I'm killing this. If it doesn't pass my wife's test, it also shows she plays a very prominent role in Guderian's decision-making. And we can unpack that later in perhaps other questions. I don't know where we're going with this. I won't go down that rabbit hole. But the one thing I would say is if we're doing a book on German generals' letters, what fascinated me in, in doing it was, yes, what the German generals, that was my starting point. It became very much more aware to me that the other side to that coin is who these women are. These women are not just, oh, well, they're just the wives. Not at all. In fact, I could not find a single thing written anywhere. Please write me if you're a listener who knows of anything written about German generals' wives in the Second World War. I had, I was asking the reviewers, I've been asking friends in the field. There's a lot written on 
elite women and women in the national socialist state, I'm thinking very specific to the German wives, they are, let's just say, essential people, both as coping mechanisms for these men, but they are also soundboards. They trust them, trust them like no one else, and they're putting ideas to them. Um, so, you know, there's, there's, there's a real... Uh, I think, uh, uh, I guess, um, for someone who has spent as much time as, as I have thinking about uh, command on the Eastern Front and how that works, I, I don't mind saying one of the big learning curves and oversights was me thinking that, well, well, the German generals basically operate in their own world and talk maybe amongst each other, but that's about the circle. And there's a whole other side to it I'd never really considered. And how do I know that? I know it both from the letters, but one of the things I discovered in the research is I found 13 letters of Margareta herself. So there's actually a voice from one of the German general's wives in the book that we can record. And, and that is, again, we can explore that in future parts of this, depending on where we go. Um, but that is a very, very interesting source. I mean, you've touched uh, on the personal correspondence. How? What? What else do they tell us about the private fears, sort of public pressures, and personal motivations of these generals? And do you think the sort of the family connection, I suppose, the, the dimension of their wives, are really important in motivating them and shaping their conduct in in as a commander, but also as a celebrity? Sure. Yeah. No. That's that goes very much to the point I was just trying to make. I didn't want to go down the rabbit hole, but maybe that's the opening. Um, so if someone said to me, "Okay, what are these roles?" Um, on the one hand, and I spent a lot of time contextualizing this book by trying to do what I hadn't done before. Like, obviously, I've read a lot of German military history and, uh, you know, works on biographies and so on. But to get new perspectives, I really wanted to think a bit outside the box. And, and so to do that, you have to really read interdisciplinary. I was reading things that I'd never read before. German, you know, the, the great thing about studying national socialism is there's there's no end of literature, right? So there's whole literature on sexuality in the German state. There's whole literature on masculinity in the German state, not stuff I'd sort of read. I was reading all the stuff on social psychology, how people make sense of the world, why they do what they do. A lot of this stuff was really helpful for contextualizing this. One of the things, of course, also was the nature of women in the Third Reich. I mean, I'd read some of that stuff before. So the basic point, if people haven't read that before, is, you know, women must be, it's that traditional picture of the women, they must be very deferential. In Margareta's letters, she is fully aware of what her role is, and there are passages which fully conform to that. She says things like, I'm paraphrasing here, but, you know, oh, I wouldn't dare to tell you, dear Heinz, how you should do anything on, you know, this is not the preserve of the woman. I defer entirely to you as to the, the manner in which you conduct your operations. That sounds like, oh, yeah, she's fully aware of the context and, and what her role should be. What's fascinating is while she does that, there are other passages in there that shows that is absolutely not how she sees it. She is giving him very much advice. So I'll give you an example. Um, one of the things I picked up just by rereading some of the older literature is when Kenneth Maxey wrote his biography of Guderian in the 1970s, he was uh, accessing the estate to get access to some of these letters through Guderian's son. Guderian, of course, had died in the early 50s or in the mid 50s. Um, so he was talking to Heinz Gunther, that's Guderian's eldest son. Now, in one of these conversations that's related by Kenneth Maxey, he said that, this is Guderian's um, son, my mother acted as a chief of staff to my father. That's a very curious term to use. Keep in mind, Heinz Gunther is himself a general in the Bundeswehr after the war. He even has the same position that Guderian got in the war, the inspector of panzer troops. That's what Heinz Gunther got. Now, a guy like that of his generation does not frivolously use a term, I think, like chief of staff. That's a very specific, very responsible role in the German army. And he said that his mother played that role for his father. That's extremely interesting. Really? So she, what does that mean? Then I go back to the letters and there's a passage. I can't remember which letter. It's late December 1941. So the context is Braukic, the commander of the, of the, the commander in chief of the German army has been fired, right? Fired on the 20th of December. Now there's the scramble for who's going to replace him. Now, Keep in mind, on the one hand, she's played this deferential role as I'm just a wife, and then this passage turns up. Again, I'm going to have to paraphrase, but it is something to the align to the effect of Braukic's departure has provided the opening we have been discussing. I don't want to put anything in this letter because you know she doesn't want to give anything away. Keep in mind, she is not just sitting in Berlin in her house. What does she do? She lives in the most exclusive suburb 
in Berlin. It's the same suburb that Himmler lives in. A lot of the prominent people. She's in those circles. She moves around. She writes in the letters about, oh, I had lunch with Frau Keitel and Kesselring. And the names are being dropped. She's in the Red Cross. She's in the Nazi party. She's, she's going to the events. She advocates on his behalf. She's collecting information. She's passing on the rumor mill. And this is important, right? So she's politicking for him, right? On the home front, she's passing on this information and saying, look, opportunities are out there. She says, I can't remember the number, but you know, six names are in contention here. Um, things will have taken a turn that we may not have predicted. I can't tell you what they are. When I was talking to you on the phone, I also can't say. She's very aware. She's very politically savvy. Phones are not like they are today where, well, probably they are sometimes tapped, but in a, in a command phone, anyone can pick up a re receiver and listen to the call. And people do that all the time. It's normal for you. ADC to be listening in. So she can't be saying this stuff, but she's communicating in the letter. We basically need to talk in private. And I have got instructions for you that you need to take note of. That is a chief of staff. And it also says for whatever anyone will say about, you know, women in the Third Reich being deferential, not Frau Guderian. She was playing a role, an active role, and she wasn't just a support figure. She is telling him what he needs to do. Um, keep in mind one other thing that people probably won't know. In the German army, I don't know when this changed, but when Guderian got married, so he gets married, I think, just before the First World War. But at that time, you can't just marry anybody. The regiment must approve your wife. So there's already a criteria for who you're marrying. Correct sort of social you know, standing and acceptable to us. In, in, in other words, there's a sort of selection. You need to be an officer's wife, a certain type of woman. Um, I don't know what that says because I don't know enough about the, the selection process of the time, but it is interesting that she ends up being the perfect wife in so many ways for a man like Guderian. Um, so I think that's just super interesting in illuminating how that personal side, and look, I could tell you other stories, I'm going down Guderian's path a little bit at the moment, but how there are other things in those letters that allude to how these wives, um, you know, support their husbands in really fundamental ways, emotionally, first and foremost, it's just a little, a little easier with my because I actually have her... Uh, her voice. We, we've got these. There's only 13 letters for 1941. Uh, there's a few others in other parts of the war. Um, but that's the pivotal period that I'm mainly focused on, simply because all of these men are at the same time in the same army fighting the same war. They all become Panzer Group commanders in 1941. They are directly comparable. Very often the problem with doing biographical work around German generals in the Second World War is people are comparing people from 1939 to 1940, and they're in fighting different wars. They're fighting in different contexts. They're fighting with different formations, and they're in different parts of the army we kind of think it's all the same but it's really not and we need to have some awareness of that so uh yeah there's it's a rich story there's there's a lot of meat on that bone and, and i think just a lot that people haven't necessarily heard before now as you delved into the minds minds of these commanders what were some of the common sort of professional drivers that motivated them on the battlefield how did their backgrounds and experience shape their approaches to strategy and leadership mm, yeah that's really important um I guess one of the things that I was interested in is illuminating, you know, to what extent are these guys a product of their environment and to what extent are they acting as individuals? And of course, there's, there's both, right? But sort of trying to delineate what is groupthink or what is representative of the, the branch that they, that they represent, the Panzertruppe, um, and, and what is individual. Um, and I think uh, one of the things I would definitely say is in that strategic sense, they all come or they're all cut from kind of the same cloth because I see a lot of the, what I would identify to be problems replicated in not just my four subjects, but you know, obviously, as someone who has spent quite a lot of time doing these operational histories, they, they seem to be themes that I had seen time and again with maybe more senior commanders or at least other commanders, a lot of army commanders, there's a panzer trooper, there's people from the artillery and all the rest of it, but it seems to be a common feature. So um, to give an example of that, uh, when I talk about the, you know, obviously I have different sort of sections of the book dealing with different areas. I talk about private, I talk about sort of the public, I talk about the military. In the military side, it's actually one of the things that we teach our graduate students that we are as interested in what's in the uh, the, the sources you're reading as what is not in there, 
right? So as a guy who tries to chart the success of this campaign or the failures of this campaign, one of the things I think we can often agree on is the German generals don't really seem to engage very well with the imposing logistics of this enormous campaign. And so one of the things you can immediately do with the letters is, given that they are, A, talking a lot about the military, almost exclusively about the military, all that stuff I said at the beginning about, oh, but they would have to be, you know, there's this this ordinance on communication. They are way above that, could not care less. They will do what they wish. They're also not subject to the censor. The censor is happening at the divisional level. These guys aren't putting their letters through that. They're not even sending their letters through the post. There's a couple of letters that I know did go through the post, but the overwhelming majority are there's handing it to the the, the the next guy going back to Berlin on the on the private plane, and they're just taking them. Some of them even hand deliver the the, the the letters at least to um, uh, uh, Guderian's wife because she's in Berlin, and that's where they obviously fly back to quite often. Uh, it's a bit more difficult if you're if you're you know in a in a more rural setting. But what they'll do is they'll take the the, the plane back very often, and then they might post it and send it through the local. Uh, the local postal system. So it goes faster. But in these letters, when they feel fully free to talk about anything and everything, um, it's interesting how much they will talk about uh, strategic problems and who's not doing what they should be doing. They're very, very critical of other generals. That is the key reason for problems as they see it. People making the wrong decisions. If they only believed or understood the world as I do and had the right commanders, we would do so much better. But you can also go through these letters. Keep in mind, I've got about 140 letters if you take all four men through the back half of 1941. There are more letters than that. And I did use more letters than that. But I particularly focused this study because, again, coming back to this idea, I want them to be comparable. The problem is, if anyone knows their biographies, they are in different places or not in command at other times, right? So Herpener gets fired at the early part of January 1942, never commands again. So you can't really compare him to anyone else beyond that. So I like this period. In this period, when there's 140 letters, there I can't remember I'm doing it off the top of my head, but there are a very small number of references, you know, supply or logistics or German equivalents to um, to those terms, right? You would expect that given this operation is fundamentally undercut by things like logistics or talk about intelligence. Intelligence is important, right? We need to know what's on the other side of the front. They don't really talk about it very much. There's the whole Red Army. You would think, well, that's the other side of the coin. That's the people fighting us. It doesn't really feature very much. It's quite fascinating how they conceive of in private letters where they feel uninhibited. Keep in mind also, I think is another factor in viewing these letters. I think if you saw, I don't know, Mark Milley or one of these prominent generals of today who was writing private letters to his wife, you could reasonably assume someone, a historian one day is going to look at these. I think to think that he didn't write them with a public audience in mind would be uh, unlikely. That's not true of our German generals. There's no question the things they're writing here, they do not think that a historian one day is going to be pouring over this stuff. And this is a private letter. And um, I think that's uh, that's also, it helps for the veracity of it all. So there's all these things that they don't write about, or, or you find, I don't know what it is, nine references to uh, logistics in a given letter, letter collection where we've got 33 letters. That strikes me as remarkably small, given, as I would say, from a lot more work beyond just this book in charting these operations, they are being fundamentally undercut by the lack of resources. And even when they reference those nine times, are they, are they complaining about it? No, they're just happening to mention. Oh, again, we're getting complaints on logistics. Uh, th that's the side. And you spend a whole page talking about how Field Marshal Bock once again hasn't given you the resources. Field Marshal Bock is to blame. Field Marshal Bock. It's very interesting how they reconstruct that world. And what we have, and I'm just one part of that, collectively understood to be the problems of Barbarossa, I would say these men aren't necessarily on board with identifying the same problems, which says a lot about how they've reconstructed their world and even how they understand Clausewitz and things. I mean, there's a, there's a theory out there, and this is the theory in their time as well. I know, though, that this is actually not one of my subjects, but Kleist, one of the Panzer Group commanders, there's only six in 1941, Kleist is one of them. In the post-war uh, interrogations, he said something fascinating once. He said, yeah, Clausewitz, someone asked him about it. And I thought, yeah, Clausewitz. They asked him. And he said, yeah, I've never read him. Apparently, he's really good. And I thought, wow, if that is in any way representative, how did you become a general staff officer? I would have thought that's core reading. Nope, he'd never read it. It's quite openly, I've heard he's good. But that might also account for, 
okay, some of the stuff we're seeing, we might have assumed things that aren't always true. Um, unfortunately, I could never find another reference to another German general being asked the same question, but it certainly poses some questions. It seems, I mean, this is a slight aside, but it seems that, it, you know, we all assume these Panzer generals are technocratic geniuses. They've got these new sparkling machines. They're fighting the new war. They're not horse-drawn. And you would have thought they would have been, you know, real petrol heads and in, in the machines and understanding them and seeing how you get some petrol. Mm. But it seems that they're motivated by a sort of a personal court type of politics, not by this sort of professional military idea we have often of German generals. Absolutely. That is another thing I would bring out if you read these letters so one of the, uh, the plans for the book was i was going to publish all the letters in the book uh long story short um uh, that wasn't possible because of the archive i uh, don't mind saying they changed the goalposts on me because when i first started it was all possible and halfway through the book uh that became impossible they suddenly got cold feet about german copyright law and all these sorts of things which is not a thing but uh, i've I, I include two pages at the very end i have a little epilogue where i have a bit of a shot uh uh but it's not even a little shot but th- look I, what I don't get, what I can't get over is these men are without question, uh, shoulder to shoulder with Nazi plans. They're not opposing them. They're implementing them. When we, If we unpack criminality, yeah, they're involved in this stuff. So how is it that we still care about German copyright law? Like, in other words, ma- making a long story short, basically, when they get these letter collections, normally what would happen if we went today to the German military archive and gave them a big collection of letters, they would ask you a lot of questions about what can be done with them. Problem is, when some of these letter collections got donated, they didn't ask these questions. So when I said to them, what can I do? I want to publish these. They're like, oh, well, I don't know. I, I don't know. We, I, I don't know if we can. We can't. And I said, well, I, you know, I think we should. I think we can. I think they're you know, of historical value, they made me sign an indemnity. Oh, fi- I'll sign. I don't care at all. Fine. Let's get these out there. W- what's going to happen? Oh, but what if the family don't agree or something? Who cares what the family think? These guys are Nazis. What, we're going to defer to their grandson over getting these important documents out there? No, I think the German state should own these. Now, do we do we ask Himmler or, or Goering's family members if we can publish some of their stuff, please? Oh, no, I guess we can't see it then. No, we don't. They're in the public archive. Let's use it. And then they changed the, the mind a year later when I was deep into the book and they said, oh, yeah, now we're going to evoke German copyright law. No one can publish them until 70 years after the death of these men, which kind of frustrated me. But um, uh, that's actually now expired for Herpener, and I've gone and published them in a journal, uh, the Journal of Slavic Military Studies, if anyone's interested. So you can actually read them, but the others haven't come out of copyright and won't for some time. So anyway, yeah, that was an aside. What was the, what, did you, were you asking me a question, and I've totally gone on, off on a on a tangent? Was, I was just wondering about the, the fact that they, 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 these guys are not ta- technocratic geniuses with ah, yeah. machines. You know, they seem to be – it seems so much like um, a court, you know, like King Henry mm. – the eighth of Britain or England rather. And they just seem to be, you know, it's all about personalities, politics, not the machines that they've got. got. They're not fired up by getting these, you know, it seems just that they, you are hundred percent right. Understand. Or, and it's such a shock that they don't see what seems so obvious to us now as, as scholars looking back at the, the Eastern front. Yep. Thanks for reminding me where that was. Yes, I would say the same. Look, we imagine the German army, and it's correct, as a pyramid, right? Like militaries, right? That's how they are. And they're very, you know, top down. This is the German Wehrmacht, right? Now, at that low level, middle level, it's all very correct. You get an order, you implement it. And yes, there's something called tactic. I don't know what military people, mission command or something like that, where you can interpret the order to some extent, but the intent is clear, blah, blah, blah. At the top level of this, that doesn't really apply. And most particularly, no one's really done a study of army commanders or so, but I would dare say you would see much more or more autonomy among panzer commanders than you would among other parts as well, other branches of the army, just because these guys are very, they are brought up with an ethos of high risk. You know, we break through the front. We don't care about flanks. You just keep driving, driving, driving. And this idea of high risk is kind of just the ethos and, 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 you know, branching into the, the new tech and being these modern men. That's part of the reason why they pursue the, the modern propaganda. The part of the others who go against this just see it as, well, what do these guys think they are? superstars or getting on the magazines oh it's so unprussian not to these guys no and they're right in a way their their careers are going places and the ones who don't do it very well don't do very well even if they have good commands they're not as prominent and the the, the, the evidence for that is, is not just the success of their careers, it's also the failures of their careers. So anyone who knows anything about Guderian knows he gets fired and fired by Hitler right so he's lost faith. 
you're gone. Now, people like Herpener are fired two weeks later, and he is gone. He's gone for good. You never hear of him again as being a, a commander. Guderian is in the doghouse, and he very much just went right against all the instructions. Um, how did he come back in 1943 as the inspector of panzer troops? That's a pretty important position, and you only get there with Hitler's favor. He is back in 1942 working the connections through the personnel, um, trying to ingratiate himself to Hitler, emphasizing his credentials. Um, there's even a, a family uh, connection uh, uh, to the Keitels. So um, through his wife, there's a, I can't remember the exact relationship, but she is related to the Keitels through marriage. Um, so, uh, so her sister is married to someone, I think one of the Keitel brothers who's head of the personnel, um, I think I'm getting that right. Um, in any case, there's connections. He's working those. She's working those. He's back in Berlin where you can do this kind of thing. And then he reemerges, right? Um, he was not going to do that unless he worked very hard to do it. Schmidt is exactly the same. Schmidt gets fired with, you know, he's really done the wrong thing. In 1943, basically, he wrote letters to his brother. His brother was found to be a spy. And in some of the letters after the Gestapo raided his brother's house, some of these letters were from Schmidt um, admitting, yeah, they've got some big problems and bloody Nazis making decisions, something along those lines. Well, of course, when they found that, he's removed from command. This is after Stalingrad. But he does the same thing. He's buddy-buddy with, of all people, Himmler. So he's going to Himmler and saying, come on, put in a good word for me. And Himmler does it three times with Hitler, trying to get him. So they're working the connections. And Himmler keeps sitting there, you know, just trying to do this. Hitler is getting this. And from what we can deduce, he's very confused. Hang on, wasn't that the guy who wrote, yes, mein Führer, but, and in the end, is no future career for um, Schmidt. But again, he knows, and he's very successful. He's very successful at manipulating the back channels. And he was, in his career, very successful in the media side of things as well. Um, so I detail that sort of stuff in the book. What is he doing? He's courting journalists, bringing them to the Eastern Front, and then they go away and write their articles. He knows what that means. That's currency. Um, so yeah, look, uh, that, there's that side of things. I'll probably overemphasize that. But I think your point is correct. Um, and one of the things I even described, I, I think, which is not a term I'd ever used before, is only really looking at these letters. I said, look, you have to kind of imagine that these panzer groups aren't part of the pyramid. They're like independent fieldoms where I'm now the ruler of this area of Russia. And I sort of get orders, but I treat them as, well, if that accords with my view, I'll follow it. If it doesn't, I'll, give you, I'll send back something of why I can't do that. And, and these are orders coming through. So there's a lot of autonomy for these guys, or at least they grant themselves that autonomy, and they are extremely critical of their contemporaries. They do not get along. They see them all as competitors. And if you are understanding the world in which they've lived and how they got this high, it kind of makes sense. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world in their view. This is why they don't go to each other for emotional support. They're the competitors almost. The Red Army is the competitor, we would have said. Not in their head. That's not as much the, a problem as the potentially these guys gobbling up their resources. Why is he getting it and not me? It's not a problem of Germany doesn't have the capacity to support this operation. It's, no, people are allocating this incorrectly. It should be going to me. I'm the guy who's going to win this. Um, it becomes very evident when one reads these letters and, and looks at it that way. I wonder whether it's that sort of um, social sect of officers who come through the First World War, they're married to the right people, They and then they go through the 20s and the 30s, so they know each other, they've been to their houses, they you know go to the same schools, and it's all about this sort of infighting bureaucracy and it sort of takes you on. So you're in a world where you you have your peers, you know, whether it's a social grouping and that social grouping seems to shape their personal choices and motivation. You know, they're on the battlefield, mm. but it's about getting personal gain um, over your social rivals. It sounds very, very sort of um, suburban in some ways. Yeah, yeah. And maybe to make it a little bit more complicated than what I just said, and it riffs off your point really well, while it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world and they are able to really be vicious toward each other, at least in these private letters. I don't know how they spoke in, in person. But what's interesting is, uh, I'm trying to do this without going into rabbit holes of, of giving examples, but but Reinhardt and Herpener are in the same um, uh Panzer group in the summer of 1941. So they're driving towards Leningrad and they don't get along and they write things about each other. And, you know, particularly Reinhardt is, does not like Hopener. At least that's what you would think. When you get to the end of the period and they're both on the Eastern Front um, and they are worried that people are going to cannibalize their units to pull the 
Panzer forces out and hand them to the neighbors who are failing, like the Fourth Army and the Ninth Army, they become close buddies and start to realize where we're both pulling in the same direction. We both have to defend ourselves. Again, this idea of Falzum. They don't care that the other, that the other, their, 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 their neighboring units are going to get broken through and completely annihilated. No, 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 no. I'm not interested in the strategic. I'm interested in preserving my strength. So even though the commander, in this case Kluger, is going to them and saying, "No, but you don't you understand? If they break through on the on the on the on the on the, on the right hand flank, you're going to be in retreat too. It's their problem. Why do we have to go to everyone else? You know, we don't get enough resources. Nobody's helping us. And when we've been in difficulties, I didn't see the infantry coming to us. Blah 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 blah. It's really hard. And the problem is, I used to think it's top down. So when they give you an order, they do it. The problem is, is and this is where you start to see the uh, the way in which command work. They they don't say no. I'm not going to implement the order. What they do is they say uh, snowdrifts terrible. Um, uh, the, the 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 can't get through. That everything's going to so we can't move. We won't be able to move for two weeks and you don't know okay there is a lot of problems with that sort of stuff yes there's a lot of snowdrifts moving things laterally on the eastern front don't make sense but you also know what their motivations and again because now we have the private letters you can see them saying things like there's absolutely no way i am doing that once again I'm having to save everyone else. They're very, they all believe that they are in the hardest part of the Eastern Front. I think that's actually something I have read before about other commanders. And they think that everyone else has got it much better than them. Um, even Guderian at one point, he's writing about his sons. He's got two sons. They're both on the Eastern Front, believe it or not. One's in Army Group North, one's in Army Group South. And he writes something about, oh, don't worry, dear. Um, the boys are in wonderful parts. You know, they're, they're not where I am. Here is terrible, but, you know, they'll be having easier wars. And I thought to myself, wow, that's even your own children. <laughs> um, there's a, he, he is actually quite distant. Coming back to your earlier question about the personal side, Guderian isn't worried about his sons. In fact, okay, I'm telling stories now, but six weeks into the campaign, he, he, one of his sons sends him a telegram. I don't know how he quite sent him a telegram congratulating him on getting the oak leaves to the Knight's Cross, right? And it's almost like Guderian suddenly remembered he had a son because he writes to Mar Margreta saying, oh, um, Kurt just wrote me. Um, I've suddenly realized I don't have either of the boys field post numbers. Now, what that means is you can't send a letter on the Eastern Front without a field post number. So it's quite categorical. For as long as he has not been in Berlin, he's never sent these boys a letter. The campaign's been on for six weeks, hasn't written them. He's writing my Greta every few days, right? And it's like, oh, yeah, but I should probably write them. So sorry, dear. Could you please send me? I know I should have remembered to bring those field post numbers with me, but I didn't. And he's like almost excusing himself for... I haven't written them. I haven't even thought to write them, um, which would be fine if you said, okay, the guy's busy running a campaign, but I have the letters. And what is he doing? Buying art, uh, you know, talking all night to the biographer who's going to write his biography, managing his field post. It's the boys are like afterthoughts. And he does actually write through the rest of the war. He's, he's writing, how are the boys doing? He doesn't really write them. He waits for Margareta to send him news. So it's just an interesting uh, way in which these men understand the world. Now, you mentioned the sort of dimension, the criminal dimension of the war. Now, these, these commanders are operating in what would be politely described a complex and morally challenging environment. How did they respond to the ethical dilemmas they faced? And what were, their, what were the broader implications for the way they fought on the Eastern Front? And were they, were they motivated by Nazi ideology? Yeah, I think that's uh, super interesting. I, I kind of like the way you you, you, you you phrased that in terms of the, you know, what did you say, politely? I, I'm not sure that they experience the war in the way we would think like ethical dilemmas moral dilemmas do they have those i'm not sure again these men are socialized in a different world and keep in mind even in britain of that time or france of that time what we would consider openly racism openly racist statements were you know fair game you can find them in the, in the, in the you know what the people will say in parliament there's no backlash because it's different times right so in a very conservative cast like Prussian uh, militarism, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, they accept a lot of what the Nazis, not 100%, but a lot of that worldview is not something they have a problem. And even when we get to this really blatantly criminal side, I mean, we can just look at the big picture. Like if we accept, okay, I'm talking about four German generals, but let's zoom out a little bit. There are three army group commanders in Operation Barbarossa. Below them, there are 13 army commanders. Below them, there are 44 corps commanders. Below them, there are 150 divisional commanders. These men often come out of exactly the same cast. They are general staff officers, right? Now we ask a simple question like, what do we know happens in Barbarossa? A hell of a lot of criminality. The Holocaust begins in the East in, in late July, early August. They're mass murdering Soviet Jews, plus all the criminal orders, the, the you know, 
partisan operations and so on. It's all happening as early as 1941. If anyone wants to suggest to me they don't know what's going on, I just dismiss that out of hand. They absolutely know what's going on. In fact, Herpener, he is very close with his local Einsatzgruppe. That's the guys who from the SS or SD actually are mass murdering Jews. He's very close with him in 1941. We have the letters from that guy writing about Herpener and saying, he's really good. He's really a good person. Our relations are close. In fact, you might even say cordial, right? So they associate, they know what each other are doing. And the question is, from all these guys, how many of them are so outraged by this reprehensible behavior that they're tarnishing the good name of the German army or the German state? None. How many of them resign? None. That's a remarkable thing. Now, people might be inclined to say, well, okay, but they don't, you know, they don't control Nazi policy towards the Jews. Okay, but let's look at what policies they do control. So the Commissar Order is one of the more famous criminal orders, right? There's a couple of different criminal orders, but that's particularly important because it comes from the German army. So the German army write this thing. Okay, yes, in response to uh, what Hitler's talking about, how this war is going to be conducted, and then it's not the not a, a war like the one in the West, but that's an army order. It's distributed. Now, what people may know is because they will have read or may have read Guderian's memoir, a very popular book, sold millions of copies. Munstein, he's a Panzer Corps commander in 1941 in Army Group North. Um, uh, he writes a memoir. Both of them ex- address this explicitly. And they're categorical. We did not pass that order on. We were, it was an affront to the German army, right? Yeah, okay, you say that. But there's a guy named Felix Rumer who went to the German archive, did his PhD and spent two years there reading every... I wouldn't have thought this is possible, actually. Uh, if you imagine that German ar- warehouse, uh, that German archive, it's like a warehouse, right? It's just that filled with paper. And he decided, I'm not going to do some... You know, we had all these potted studies. I did this, you know, case study on this division to try and extrapolate what was the what was the, the nature of the criminal order. Well, Rumer basically went through and read it all. And at the end of it, he was categorical. I can tell you exactly given a review of all the literature or all the documents, what was and what wasn't done. And the bottom line of all of it is, if you took those 44 cores, of course, there's evidence in all 44 of them, but particularly looked at the Panzer cores, they are overrepresented. They're all in the top, the top 10, right? Um, I don't know how many of those, seven of the top 10 cores are Panzer cores. And if you go to Schmidt, Herpener, Reinhardt, Guderian, Munstein, they're all there. They're all doing it. And not just, oh, there's a couple of cases, hundreds of cases. So they definitely pass on the order. What they are aware of, hey, there's the connection with our earlier part. What they are aware of and what they do so well is they read the public sentiment. And after the war, oh, yeah, I'm really good at this. I know how to promote my career. I did it in the uh, original part of the, 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 the Second Reich. I did it in the Weimar state. I did it under the Nazis. And then in the post-war world, I'm doing it again. You manage the message. And the message is, oh, God, you can't be a Nazi now. That's not a good look. So they're writing, I didn't do it. And we didn't have all those files. In the 1950s, those files are closed. They don't become available to historians until the 60s so no corrective is available right we have their word for it and no one really challenged it because well what evidence have you got um so what we know from that is are these guys on board with criminality yes are they prepared to lie about it yes in the worst excesses we know that uh that they don't have a problem with it and how do we know that from the letters what do the letters tell us about that well again silences is the thing we look at if i've got 140 letters and i have to tell your listeners there is exactly zero mention of the holocaust in it that says two things to me number one is it possible these letters were edited we haven't got a full recollect a full accounting of them 100 in fact i can i won't go down that path yet but there's a way in which i could try to cross check them to find out is it possible that we have a full collection? We definitely don't in all four cases. They seem to have filtered them. Okay, so I'm already dealing with a, uh, a, a collection that is tainted in that way. But doesn't it sound extraordinary if I have to tell you that in 140 letters, there is no reference to this phenomenon, which must have struck them as remarkable that they're mass murdering in that year alone, they'll kill 650,000 Jews by bullets. Talk about industrialized killing. Even when you've got gas chambers, you only kill six or five and a half more million with industrial. So that's a very bloody process. And it's happening inside the Panzer groups, right? The Einsatzgruppe or Gruppen operate at the forefront of the, of, the, of the advance where the Panzer groups are. They're even giving them the bullets and the fuels. That's how close the relationship is. Um, and there's not a single reference anywhere that any one of these guys in 140 letters might say, oh, it's an affront to the good name. No, they never write that. There's no 
reference to it being a good thing, which might also suggest why they're being filtered, and geez, that's not going to look good after the war, but there's certainly nothing denouncing the whole process. That's extraordinary for men who are very Christian, believe they're doing the right thing and saving the world, that you would think there'd be some reference to this terrible, terrible thing that the Nazis are doing, unless the only references to it confirmed it and said, oh, you know, that they agree or that, you know, that they're not denouncing it. You know, I, I just think that's a, that's a, that's a very, very big red flag. Sorry, mate, my answer is getting long here. I should keep them short. No, don't worry. <laughs> Beyond these specific commanders, how does the evidence from their sort of private and, and personal correspondent provide insight into the broader institutional norms and cultural ethos of the Wehrmacht uh, and the Panzer Corps during this tumultuous period? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm riffing off a little bit of some of the stuff I've talked about before, where you know we can sort of see this uh, this um, uh, this view of the East as being, um, you know, that, that they do mention some of the Nazi tropes, right? So they they clearly, and what's interesting, given what I've just said, is if they're filtering these letters after the war, it's interesting how even when they're filtering them, they're still including things because in that time you could get away with a lot more than you could now. For example, in Reinhardt's letters, which he himself has released, right? He, he sends them to the archive in the early 60s. He even has things like, you know, the Soviet generals, they're so Jewified. Now, he, he didn't think that was unacceptable. I'm pretty sure if he was filtering them a couple of decades later, or at least you bloody well hope so, he might have thought, oh, that's not something I should do. Um, it's interesting how he still thinks that's acceptable. I mean, these men, there's, there's evidence also from Guderian that post-war he's quite anti-Semitic in some of his statements. Um, so, we have a sense of how they view the world, um, and I think that comes up very much both in the, uh, as I said, the silences and also in very much what they write. But on the private side as well, I mean, and perhaps riffing off what I said before about Guderian, it's it's not just because the evidence is there. It's not one size fits all. Like Guderian is not um, uh, embracing his children. Now, you know, that, that could be, well, you have to understand that men of that age had a different relationship to their sons, but that's not Herpener. He has a son on the Eastern Front as well, and he is working every angle to protect his son. So he's up in Army Group North, his son's down in the 6th Army, which is in the, the, the Ukraine, and he's constantly calling the 6th Army, and they're getting very sick of it, and, they, and he even starts to complain to his wife, Irma, saying, God, there's no friends in this war, um, as, though, as though he isn't extorting every privilege to do this, and they're sick of it, having to go right back down. to. And then he starts going to the OKH, the high command of the army, because he has to talk to them and says, oh, by the way, on the side, would you mind talking to six? I mean, just they don't really want to talk to me anymore. Can you inquire on my behalf about my son? And then he's writing to his wife about, oh, we've got to get him on a course, seeing how high the officer casualties are, especially among young lieutenants. And he's realizing, my God, I got to get this kid off the Eastern Front. So we've got to get him on a course. And uh, it turns out that that same phenomena is happening for um, Heinz Gunther, so Guderian's eldest son. But Heinz has nothing to do with it. At least there's no evidence in his letters. He's not writing about that. He just gets on a course. He gets picked for the course. And he comes home absolutely furious that someone's taken him off the Eastern Front. Don't you know that's where you make your name? I don't want to go on some bloody course. I need to be in the war because, you know, it's all the, the, the feiklings who go home, right? It's all the, the people who aren't real men who go home to do courses. I'm going to fight the war. Um, but Herpener is deliberately, even though his son doesn't want to, getting him on this course, working the, the back channels. It's very interesting to see how, on the one hand, they... Uh, you know, they, they operate in very different ways. Again, in some ways, what this tells me, and it's part of the, the thing that, you know, I'll leave to other people, but it would be fascinating to see more follow-up work. Maybe you looked at from army commanders. There's many more army commanders to pick from. There's less panzer commanders to try and substantiate what if this worldview that I've been able to construct is maybe unique to the panzer trooper. Maybe it's, maybe there's more cross-pollination with other parts of the army, but we won't know until someone does that kind of study or gets access to these kinds of letters. So from the, from the work that you've looked at, you've looked at these senior generals and, and their motivations and what drive them. Do you think that they are, they are driven by distinctly different things, maybe shaped by context than say, soldiers on the front line in you know in trenches around leningrad or in the south the actual sort of yeah, makes a difference yeah i mean i think that there is a lot to do with the, the 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 different generations as well that would help explain that and the different experiences of the war these men are removed to no small extent from that that punishing physical routine um but it's not to say that they don't uh, on some level suffer they suffer uh, 
interestingly, from older man issues, right? When they're on the Eastern Front, they often all have stomach problems, right? Um, I don't know how common that was among younger soldiers, but they sometimes complain about the fact that, you know, I'm an older man and I'm suffering from these things. They also experience social isolation. Um, Guderian is very clear about this um, and the others allude to it. Um, and actually, maybe maybe Herpener is also quite explicit about it uh, in the sense that, you know, on the one hand, they're popular men. They're the, the chief guy and you know, younger officers sort of coalesce around and these, 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 these staffs are big, right? There's not just the staff officers, but there's all the attendant people, plus there's the soldiers who guard them and so on. And there's people constantly coming in. But then Guderian on the one hand will say, but, you know, and I think it also speaks to being that guy when you have to be extremely positive and sell the message. And he is that guy, this decisive guy. Over the course of 1941, he becomes quite depressed. And uh, I would even say, I'm not a clinical psychologist, but I would say he probably becomes clinically depressed. Um, uh, it, it becomes very apparent in the letters just how bad it gets. Is even another guy who comes to visit him, who keeps his own diary, another German general, um, guy from the Luftwaffe, and he says, God, I was feeling terrible when I went to go and see Guderian. And then he writes, but Guderian is a, a gummilöwe, a, a, a rubber lion. Like I went to see him and I thought I'm going to get the big pep talk from him because he's the big hard German panzer general. And he was he was despairing. I spent the whole time with him trying to pep him up. And I felt I needed that. Um, but that's also reflected in the letters. Guderian's writing about that. And he says, look, I'm isolated from these men. Yes, they're all nice, but they're much younger than me. They don't understand the problems. He's also feeling like, and I think this is the, the real point, a point that they all experience, that this command, this, that the failure of the campaign is a failure of them personally. They'll blame others, but there's no possibility in the system that they work in and the culture that they all have sort of signed up to, for you to say, it's not me, it's resources or manpower or climate or... No, 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 no. That's all just wishy-washy. That You are the guy who has to win this, right? And they have internalized that to some extent and they feel the failure. Um, I think that's what's going on. They, they, are, they write sometimes things like, Herpener says... Um, I, I know that I face the judgmental gaze of my staff as I look at them when they have announced, this is going to sound a bit strange, but when they've announced that another German general has received the oak leaves to the Knight's Cross, because I haven't got it yet, because I haven't earned that. And those distinctions aren't personal, they're taken as the unit. So you will actually see that, again, coming back to your question about how maybe younger or, or more junior people view the officers, that is a conversation topic for more junior people. Whether you're senior officer, even if you've never met the guy, has got certain awards, they know that, they care about that, that's seen as their award. And the German generals know that, so they are very disturbed by what they are getting vis-a-vis -vis everyone else and what they are not getting. Good. Hopener is very clear about not getting this recognition and how it looks to him that he's not been given it. And he's been talking to uh, Lieb, the commander of army group north about you know hey can you intercede on my behalf and do this and when Lieb comes back and says yeah i raised it and they said no he, for him is just terrible right he feels like oh god no one appreciates how hard i work i'm in the hardest part of the eastern front and i don't get the recognition and everyone's looking at me but here's what he says nobody says anything oh like the shame the shame he must be experiencing and it's such a strange world to us but again that's what we're trying to work out how does it work from the inside how do you see that stuff and again if you accept that, and and I'm not the only one who's written on this. There's a wonderful book by, uh, again, Felix Rumer, a different book, not the one on the, the, the Commissar order, but it's called Comrades or Comraden. It's been translated into English. He talks a lot about how the Wehrmacht works from inside. And it's one of the points he makes uh, that these guys talk a lot. These are, these are much more junior people, but we have transcripts of their private conversations. Crazy, right? But we actually have these, right? Transcripts of everyday soldier, private conversations in the war. Basically, they're captured. They go to America. They, but some of them have only been there. Like, they've been captured a week ago, and they're already in this Fort Hunt, this, this special prisoner of war camp, where they put them in rooms and just put the microphones on and listen to what they talk about. They're trying to learn all about the German army, right? And so they have all these transcripts of private conversations. It's a real sense you know, and a really unimpeachable source for how do they see things? And this is one of the things that comes up, you know, how they really value themselves based on 
their commanding officer and based on the awards of their commanding officer. And then when you go into front newspapers, there's these front newspapers, you can start to see in those, they, they, they detail all these things. And all those kids I said who are writing these things, they know this stuff. They know who's where on the Eastern Front. They know who's got what awards. They know the correct type of, uh, you know, like there's different types of generals, lieutenant general, major general, general of panzer troops, colonel general. They use the correct names for these guys. They know this stuff. It's like kids collecting football cards and knowing all the stats of their guys. So you start to realize, wow, how they appear and what they've won is absolutely important. Whether or not, I don't know, someone's got an Oscar or not, or a Grammy, I guess to those fans, they know that stuff. They care about that stuff in the way we probably don't care. But but again, they see themselves as that celebrity and they know their success is tied to it. Fascinating. Anyway, I think it's... And that's tied to their sense of masculinity and manliness, for want of a better... Mm word you know so it comes back to that 100 whole sort of gender and how that's how they're socialized into that in 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 late imperial germany you know again absolutely fascinating um and it affects their self-confidence as well you're absolutely right so it's not just some people say to me oh david why do you read that stuff it's all pc crap like just be careful what you say because honestly this stuff matters and it's amazing how it's all connected together these guys don't exist in a bubble right they're not just generals they're people as well right they are affected by social phenomena anyway yeah, no, I, th- I think that that's utterly fascinating because so that you know their their whole conduct in office and their motivations, and you know they're not driven by group theory or ideology. They're group. They're driven by a combination of all this and their social world, just mm. in the party context, promotions, uh, which means material wealth, power. You know, and it's all it's all. Utterly, I mean, I'm sure you get this replicated across the American army and the British army uh, with generations. Yeah. You know, I'm sure, sure there are studies to be done, but it's an utterly fascinating window into into that world. So, David, yeah. where can people get your book? <laughs> Good point. Uh, 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 Cambridge University published it, so I guess their website. But, uh, I mean, I don't know. Where, where, where do people buy books these days? I, I buy a lot of books on Amazon. <laughs> Not that I'm giving a plug for Amazon, but, uh, yeah. And on that bombshell, um, thank you very much for your time. You're most welcome. Thank you very much.